Hey everyone, welcome to episode 29 of Conversations That Don't Suck. We have such a good one this week. I'm really excited about this episode. This is with Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon of Lovelink. And I was introduced to Simone through Jeff Bosmer, who was on the podcast. Gosh, he was like episode five or something. He's 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 back there. Go check out that episode. And Jeff introduced me to Simone and we finally were able to sit down uh me, Sina, and Simone to have this conversation. And the both of them are therapists at Lovelink. And a lot of what they focus on in their work as therapists is working particularly with millennials around the topics of love and sex and belonging and connection. And we had such a great conversation and it was so refreshing and nourishing to just have such a candid conversation around the emotional and intellectual side of communicating while in relationship and communicating during sex. And I actually, I said to them after we uh, finished recording, I'm like, I can't believe I haven't done a sex episode yet. Like there hasn't been a, a conversation around sex or even around like romantic relationships and the tricky navigation with all of that. Um, so there's probably more of this to come in the future, pun intended. And <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh God, someone control me. Um, anyways, everyone. I loved having this conversation. It was so nourishing. And uh, yeah, I honestly could have talked to the two of them for like forever, forever, forever. It felt like difficult to cut this conversation as short as I did. And yeah, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you you get something out of it. And I think they both speak to just so many universal challenges that we have when it comes to communicating during sex and in relationship and yeah, wanting to belong and wanting to be loved, but no one is teaching us how to have the tricky relational conversations that, that we all must have in order to have the, the richness and the joy that comes from good sex and good partnership. Um, and, and that's just part of, you know, one of the many reasons that we feel so lonely as a generation is that we're not engaging in like the messiness of these things. You know, it's easier to just ignore one another. It's easier to not engage. And so that's, that's a a lot of what we're choosing. And I find that remarkably heartbreaking. And it's a big piece of what I'm trying to dismantle with my work. So anyhow, hope you enjoyed the conversation with Simone and Sina. It is a really great one. They also mentioned at the end of the episode that they are doing a workshop series around dating during quarantine and connection during quarantine. And so the link for that, there's an Eventbrite link in the show notes. I highly recommend checking it out. Their work is so great. And I definitely would endorse anything it is that they create and they're just two wonderful women and I really uh, enjoyed hearing from them and speaking with them, connecting with them. So I think you would love working with them too. If that's something that interests you, definitely look for that link in the show notes. And thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We live in a world that is starved for more authentic connection. Better conversations are our first step in getting there. Welcome to Conversations That Don't Suck. I'm your host, Kyla Sokol Ward, and I'm here to engage you in truth-telling discussions about the super deep, always beautiful, sometimes ugly, and wholly honest parts of being a human. Real connection and empathic communication can feel easy and should be a part of our everyday lives. Most of our conversations suck. These ones don't. Hi, Sina and Simone. Thanks so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk with you both. Thanks for having us. <laughs> As we yeah. say. <laughs> uh, yeah what's um okay so you're both in different parts of the country I'm curious what's been like the theme of your day so far my theme has been hosting right now I have two good friends over um so my best friend from childhood and then my husband's best friend from college and actually they're starting a romantic relationship together oh my gosh <laughs> And so it's been really wonderful to host them for the last few days and watch this relationship unfold. And so the theme has been kind of negotiating, hosting, and then also working. Sina and I just did a podcast right before this. Um, and so kind of trying to balance the two. So maybe balancing, balancing is the theme. Mm, amazing. And I would say, yeah, I would definitely say working. I think what well, I was trying to think of like, what would be the theme, but maybe f feeling like an alien right now. So <laughs> I, I, I am visiting another planet. I am 
Uh, I came from Brooklyn to Louisiana, Shreveport, Louisiana, like not anywhere close to New Orleans. Um, this is like closer to Texas. And I've never been to this part of the country before. Um, and I don't know. I just, I feel like I've been transported to another place that I'm totally unfamiliar with. My partner is working down here temporarily. And um, so I'm sort of in the heart of Trump land and the heart of COVID land and feeling very out of sorts, <laughs> displaced. Oh, yeah. What an opportunity to practice empathy. <laughs> yes. yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm nice. trying to hold back the judgmental part. Mm. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Well, I'm so happy to speak with you both. And I'm actually just remembering as we were getting this started that I think it was Jeff who connected us, Simone. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it was. Oh it was. And you on the podcast, right? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I guess it was earlier this year, but it feels like lifetimes ago now that that, <laughs> that was pre-COVID, you know? like <laughs> he, He's a real connector. He is. How do you two know each other? He participated, he was a student in a, um, in a sound class with my husband. Mm. My husband does a lot of like sound bowls um, and sound meditation. And they were in this like semester long course together, which makes so much sense for Jeff as well. Oh, totally. And then we just brought him into our lives. And anytime he visited New York, he would stay with us for what started off as maybe two days and extended to a week. So <laughs> oh, wow. we, we got to know him really well. Yeah, I love oh, beautiful. it. Beautiful. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I love that. Love that he connected us. Um, well, I'm super excited to talk with you both. And I would love if you would tell all the people listening about about the two of you. And again, as I mentioned before we started recording, I think there's a lot of relevant expertise that you're both bringing to to everyone right now. So yeah, I'd love to hear in your own words what you're what you're about. Yeah. So Sina and I are both psychologists. Um, and we kind of created our relationship, or I guess our relationship started in training um, about five years ago. So we both were externs working with veterans at a VA hospital. And we were assigned to co-lead a new Vietnam veteran group for trauma. Mm. And it was very intense. It was seen and I were the only women. We were with a group of older men. And I think that was what really kind of ignited our bond. Um, and then from there, both of us, um, we really, we were really excited about kind of psychotherapy, but also thinking about other ways to practice in, in psychology. And both of us had really overlapping interests. We we're both really into love and romance and sex and talking about it all the time. And so I think both of us were like, what, what can we create with all of this sort of demand for having accessible, um, informative, science-based, but also kind of fluid definitions of love? Mm -hmm. So we created this company called Lovelink, which started out as reviewing articles and books and writing our own blogs of sorts about love and relationships and then evolved into kind of thinking more broadly, how can we disseminate information about both relationship, romantic relationships, but relationship to self and other. And now we're doing a podcast and then running workshops. So it's, it's really come, come a long way. Yeah, and it's been really good um, for both of us to have the experience of doing something outside of clinical practice. Um, so that was another reason that we decided to start this company because as psychologists, if you're in private practice, which both of us are, you're just sitting by yourself in an office mm -hmm. and then it's like patient, 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 patient. And it's, it's hard to feel connected sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so having this relationship with Simone, I mean, it's been like so powerful. We've learned so much from each other, learned so much from other people, really felt a sense of more community rather than just like the isolation of being on our own little clinical offices. Yeah. And, and obviously, and, and through this process also learned a lot about ourselves just in, in talking to experts on, on love and sex. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I would imagine there's a, like a sense of 
yeah, more interconnectedness when you're running workshops versus, yeah, the one-on-one work that you're typically doing. And I kind of, (laughs) I notice with myself when I'm like, when I'm with my therapist, I have like such a strong urge to like ask her about her life, which is obviously not the relationship that we have. (laughs) But like, I, I don't know. I sit there, I'm like, are you okay? Like what, what's your relationship? What's your, what are your relationships like right now? <laughs> like, And I always like want to like give to her in some ways because she's obviously only ever giving to me. Um, so yeah, I would imagine that's like a nourishing thing. And especially now, I think there's a real, I mean, I've noticed my clients asking more questions about mm-hmm. how I am or where I am because there's this kind of novel, at least for, for me and, and maybe our generation, this novel experience of having this shared trauma. Yeah. Like we're all experiencing COVID. We're all experiencing the kind of crazy shifts in our world and society. And so if you don't acknowledge it, there's also this kind of strange, um, yeah, it feels really artificial if you avoid that. Mm-hmm. So I typically rarely share how I'm doing, but I feel like actually in this time of COVID, I've been sharing more, you know, I mean, to an extent that I feel is appropriate, but it's like, we're both feeling something universal here and that that's important to name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious about, I mean, maybe if, if, if it's helpful for you all to break it down like pre and <laughs> during COVID, um, just like some of the themes of your work and um, super curious. I think one of the main things that comes up for me around this topic is specifically with like millennials and how so many people, I think especially like in big cities like New York City or in, and in San Francisco where young people are getting married later and later and like prioritizing partnership later and later in their lives. I see the way that like loneliness and connection like play such strong roles in terms of when we start looking for partnership. And I notice that like, I think loneliness is more prevalent in big cities one because for that reason when like we're surrounded by this idea that we should be getting married and finding love and doing all these things and we're like 25 and I don't I don't think I know any 25 year olds in San Francisco that are married or like even like really seriously partnered like it's super rare um and so yeah I'm curious about for you all what are some of the big things that you see in your world and we can flow from there so yeah I think there is a distinction between like young people in cities or people in cities in general and people who live outside of cities. But increasingly, it seems like loneliness is pervasive across the board. Mm -hmm. Um, Even, I mean, especially in the United States where people may grow up in Texas, but then they move to Florida or they, and then they move to California, you know, like there's all this movement away from uh, home base. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. My practice, I mean, Simone and I have talked about this. We've, I've seen a lot of um, people who, and obviously I'm working in Brooklyn. My office is in Manhattan. So it's all like New York people. This is like real city people. A lot of loneliness, a lot of feeling of um, being very focused on work and the pressures to perform, not feeling so connected, maybe having a lot of acquaintances, but not a lot of like close, intimate friends and really struggling with um feeling like there's somebody they can be vulnerable with yeah um so at that level there's there seems to be a lot of disconnection and feelings of loneliness and then also intrapsychically like with the self a lot of people who feel lonely even in relationships yeah like a lot of for many many different reasons people um are married partnered or have their friend groups but still feel very lonely yeah. And so uh, it's kind of like they're sort of like two pathways to loneliness. Like one is very intrapsychic and one is more sort of like circumstantial. So, and, and, you know, we certainly see a lot of both. I would say loneliness is the number one issue um, that people come down to come, come to therapy with. If you really distill it down to like yeah. what is the core of your depression, anxiety, a lot of it has to do with loneliness. When I think about that word loneliness, I mean, of course, there's a really concrete definition, which is that people are often really isolated and they don't see other people. And I think that's definitely true now more than ever during COVID. But also when I think about even pre-COVID, a lot of loneliness is about not being able to emotionally connect to other people. Like you can have friends, you can see people, you can have a partner, but we're not taught how to be vulnerable, how to share what's happening underneath. And so, I mean, even for me, like I feel, I can feel very disconnected 
from someone if there's no feelings involved, if you're not sharing like just a piece of you. And so I think it's really sad when people are never really taught or don't know how to connect with others. So it's like, you can pile on as many communities or groups or people or parties, but if you don't know how to like reach for another person or receive, it can feel like, wow, I don't really have any kind of solid attachments in my life. Mm-hmm. Actually, and that was part of the reason why the Vietnam veterans group that we ran was so powerful is that we, we got these group, this group of guys, I think there were like eight guys who were 60, 65 plus, let's say they were older. And I would say almost all of them had spent their whole lives like so defended, like so wow, much yeah. in, in like their, whatever their survival strategy was to protect themselves from vulnerability. And that the thing that was so healing about that group was that they were able to come forward in a vulnerable way and share feelings, some of them for the first time. I mean, maybe they shared with their partners, but never with another group of, um, never with a group of men. Um, And more often than not, not with their partners. And more often than not, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm, I'm stuck on something that you had said, Sina, about people in partnerships still being lonely and that you know, it's not news to me necessarily, but it does really fascinate me, especially because I think we're so fed this, this like really romanticized idealism of relationships and marriage and all of that in, in North America around like, oh, your partner is going to complete you. And essentially that like partnership is going to take away your loneliness. Like you're going to have this person that you connect with on such a deep level that you'll never feel that existential loneliness ever again. And yeah, it's of course not true. And we see this over and over again of like people who are in unhappy marriages or um, unhappy partnerships, whatever it is. And like, what, it, what is that? I, I guess, what do you all make of that in terms of what is it then that people are experiencing when like, what, what is that internal loneliness with self? Like, what is that about? Do you think? I think at core, it's about not feeling seen mm-hmm. and not feeling understood by the other person. Mm. like you know you're together all the time maybe or you're sharing a life but does my partner really get me like do they really understand what's going on and if the if, if the answer is no then it, it feels very isolating to be in that relationship it feels very it can feel very lonely mm. to not really be yeah to not really be seen And so many of us at the core have these really negative beliefs about ourselves that we either Mm -hmm. took in from our parents or took in from society and do a lot of work to try to cover that up. And to be able to turn to your partner and share, like at the core, I feel inadequate or I feel worried that you're going to leave me and have that person, the partner on the other side, still accept you and still love you. Like that, that is what connectivity is. Mm. And so often partners have no idea what the other person is thinking underneath it. And so then it becomes about the dishes or it becomes about whatever, the the kind of topical stuff from the day where you go to work and you give your all to work because millennials are so focused on career and profession. And then you come home at the end of the day and you give your partner the scraps like you, you've burnt out on all and, and everyone else. Um, and so you kind of bring the worst home. We did a podcast recently um, on male vulnerability. And obviously, I don't want to generalize because like women can be terrible, just as terrible with vulnerability as men can. <clears throat> but we talked a lot about how, you know, we're just not taught in, in our culture how to be vulnerable with each other. Right. Right? It's all so like Simone's talking about like performance based and um, image based. And um, I think that that also seeps into romantic relationships. Mm. I'm curious if y'all see this changing generally, generally, wow. Why can't I say this word generationally? <laughs> um, And like, yeah, if you have clients who are maybe like under 22, let's say, and I'm asking because like when I've spoken with uh, like my little sister said this to me recently, she's technically a millennial. She was born in 95, but she's, she's a young millennial, but she, 
um, she was saying to me, she's like, oh, I, I met this guy and I thought he was really cute and I liked him. And she goes, and then I finally worked up the nerve to ask him for a Snapchat. And I was like, that was the vulnerable move you made. <laughs> like, I, I think it really was for her. I'm like, yeah, that felt really vulnerable to ask for that. And it just, <laughs> it just like blows my mind. And unfortunately, like, I don't think that's super unique to like her being a young person. Like, I think there's, yeah, again, like lacking vulnerability can show up in a whole lot of ways. And I think it's like being learned across the board age-wise, not just with young people. And so I'm, I'm curious if y'all see any trends with that. I think young people are so much more sensitive to rejection now mm-hmm. than they were in the past. I think probably older generations lived in more communities, like in IRL communities. <laughs> so you're kind of held more accountable Whereas now young people, I mean, they have, there's so many apps that can help you find what seems like an infinite amount of options of partners. So it's so easy to ghost or it's so easy to swipe to the next person. So I think people are just like primed and prepared to be kind of cast aside and, and onto the next person. Mm. So, right. Just even sending that message first becomes a really big deal because the other person on the other side can so easily just not respond and it's mm-hmm. not there doesn't need to be a second thought or any kind of you can really avoid the emotions around ending something or breaking yes. up um and i think that's really tragic actually yeah. i get i get like a very personal trigger when i hear clients talk either whether they've ghosted or they've received a ghosting um rejection because it's just it's so um it's so damaging yeah it's so damaging, yeah. You know, when you first asked that question, I was like, oh yeah, of course we're becoming more vulnerable. Like in ways, like I feel like there's so much more out there about like mental health and emotions and, and men who and women who are like wanting to process feelings and go to therapy. I mean, like everybody in New York City, I'm sure it's the same in San Francisco as in therapy. And yeah. just like, there's like a real like willingness and openness to engagement. And then there's another part of it, like, like all these right sensitivities to rejection that Simone's talking about, like create so much defended behavior. So like on Instagram and, and you know, other social media um, platforms, people, it's like fake vulnerability. It's like people are, you know, posting all these pictures and with captions about how they're feeling and da-da. but a lot of it is very it feels very inauthentic mm-hmm. and it's, or, it, or it's like this kind of like projected perfectionism you know like I don't know it just that and then it's like well that's not that doesn't feel vulnerable that feels like it's actually creating more defended behavior mm. right? like like people now young people now seem so right afraid of rejection that they do so much like image management um yeah we really live in an era of kind of contradictions yes like yeah both what you're talking about being really vulnerable but then also really disconnected um all about community but being really lonely um sexual progressiveness but then also more than ever having less sex. So it's like, it's kind of a confusing generation in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I speak to that a lot. Like whenever I share something vulnerable and I'm using air quotes vulnerable on social media, I'll always say, I'm like, I'm sharing this after I processed it a thousand fucking times on my own. And I've talked to a hundred people about it and I've like journaled and I've meditated and I've done all these things. And now I have this beautiful curated thought that I'm sharing with you on the internet. And I've like rewritten this post 15 times. Like it's still vulnerable, but like you weren't seeing me when I was like snot crying on the phone to someone about it and just couldn't get out of bed or like I couldn't look at myself in the mirror because I didn't like the way I looked, you know, whatever type of thing. It's like, yeah, I'm sharing the aftermath of my process with you. And that's still vulnerable, but like not the deep, dirty part of it. But I think that's so important to share, right? That it's that what you're giving, which is so helpful to people, right? Is a, is what the, the comes after the processing. Mm -hmm. So you're sharing like this nugget of wisdom that you can offer and that is vulnerable, but you're not, but it's also important to know that there was a process leading up to that. Cause I think a lot of people think like, Oh, they just, this is their vulnerability. Like what's wrong with me? Like totally. that I'm 
sitting here crying, you know, like crying and having a terrible time. Nobody else is feeling that way. They all seem to be like so enlightened. Mm. And I think that vulnerability looks so different with different people. Totally. You know, that like for one person, vulnerability could really be sharing their emotions and expressing their emotions. But actually for someone else, crying is so accessible and that that's sort of an easy place to go that actually maybe containing your emotions or showing anger is vulnerable. Yeah. And so I think that really, you know, putting a post out for the first time about whatever your, your inner process is can be really vulnerable for one person, but really not for another. So yeah, I think it, it really depends mm-hmm. person. what, what feels that like kind of scary, like when your kind of nervous system goes into a little bit of a danger zone, but it also feels good. Like that, that's sort of how I think about vulnerability and that, that really can vary. Mm. Yeah. There was a thing you had mentioned, Simone, about us having less sex than ever, which I did not know. And I want, I want to hear more about this. <laughs> so there's been a number of studies that have talked about Gen Z having fewer sexual partners mm-hmm. than millennials and millennials having fewer sexual partners than Gen X. And that actually baby boomers have had more sexual partners than Gen Z. Um, and that that's kind of comparing the, like, uh, controlling for age. Mm-hmm. So when baby boomers were in their early twenties, late teens. Um, and, you know, I think there's some limitations to the data, but I think there, there was like a really, um, kind of revelatory or very surprising outcome, um, that a lot of people were really shocked by. Cause I think there has been a lot of assumptions that young people are having sex now more than ever that we live in a kind yeah. of culture and and casual sex is the norm but actually it's like that's a minority of people Mm -hmm. and I think that that sort of becomes what the standard or what the stereotype is Mm -hmm. but actually a lot of people for many different reasons and most of the reasons are kind of theorized um, are dating less having sex less and are actually I mean you know Sina you mentioned the, the kind of theme of feeling isolated and lonely, that a lot of that is very prevalent in younger people because they're not, they're not seeing as many people. Mm-hmm. And feeling more inadequate, like you were saying. Right. Right. There's a great article that came out, I think it was two years ago in the Atlantic about this phenomenon mm-hmm. um, that, that young people today are, are having less sex, few, have fewer sexual partners. Um, and they put out a bunch of interesting theories. I mean, one, one is that the rise of porn, um, causes people to, to maybe have the perception that they're more sexually satisfied and there's less of like the impulse or like the motivation to, to seek sex with people. Another, another theory is kind of around social media and that, um, more people are connecting virtually and that because more social interactions are virtual, that it becomes more difficult or there's more social anxiety yeah. that has arisen. Um, and so people avoid making real connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the depression and anxiety in of itself, which we also know is more prevalent in young people um, than in previous generations at that time, anxiety and depression are kind of killers to the libido. So you're not going to feel a lot of desire if you're working through clinical depression. Hmm. I mean, that seems to me, that seems to be uh, the most salient issue is, is seeing a lot of young people who are really suffering uh, with a lot of anxiety and depression. Um, For a lot of reasons, like the, yeah, the world. I mean, I imagine now more than ever, there's been a spike in the last six months for anxiety and depression. Like that there's this kind of very apocalyptic view that younger mm-hmm. people have, even pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and now no one's having sex because they're living at <laughs> home with their parents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's, yeah, like that was kind of the first thing that came to my mind when you had mentioned that people are, that, yeah, young people are having less sex than previous generations is like, is the, um, yeah, one of you had mentioned like inadequacy and just 
gosh, I'm very much of the belief that like sex is always vulnerable, even when it doesn't feel that way. And like, you know, whatever kind of relationship you have with the, with whoever you're having sex with and, and just like, yeah, the inability to like communicate and I don't, yeah, I don't want to like shame anyone for that because again, yeah, we're not taught to be vulnerable. We're not taught to express our fears around inadequacy, but yeah, I just think of like how difficult it would be to engage sexually with a person uh, with anyone when like, yeah, you don't know how to communicate what you want or what you don't like or the things you're afraid of this person thinking about you and just like, and also like how much richness gets added to a sexual relationship when you do communicate those things, which again, no one is teaching us to do. And, uh, and, and I think especially like in heterosexual relationships, like women are very much conditioned to like, don't speak your mind, don't ask for what you want. I think there's less of that happening now. Like I'm thinking of Cardi B's music video and like, or just how this, like hopefully a sexual revolution is coming. Um, but yeah, like don't ask for what you want. Like don't, don't express your fears and adequacy. Don't express that like you want to be held after sex. Cause like a man doesn't want that. He just wants to like fuck and get out. Um, and, and I definitely have like had these things, even with people that like I've had really beautiful sexual relationships with, I still am so afraid of expressing these things with them. Again, I just, I think so much about so many other people who have not had the types of communication trainings or whatever like relational practices and connection things that I'm always doing and like people have just never been introduced to that I can imagine it's incredibly difficult and it's so sad because when you're constantly getting these messages of don't express your wants and needs then it can be hard to even know in your to even tune in to what you want to need I think and that's that's also a real challenge it's like how do I even know what feels pleasurable or know what I like when I'm always tuned into another person Mm -hmm. Um, and I think a lot of it is about how do you kind of tune in to yourself and your body. There's, there's a real relationship between not just your partner, but with you when it comes to sex with another person. Mm-hmm. We were just doing an interview with this woman, Alexandra Solomon, who's a psychologist at the University of Michigan. And she was talking about how um, boys and girls, when, when you're going through school, you get sex ed, but you're just learning anatomy basically. And you're not ever taught anything about pleasure or that, you know, the, the body is built for also experiencing pleasure. Um, and that we're kind of, we're wired for that. And so there's a lot of shame around pleasure, seeking pleasure, asking for pleasure. Like there's something that feels very taboo about that in our culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She had this line that I loved where she said, you know, our, our, our body, our biology is built for like the clitoris sole purpose is for pleasure. Yeah. And so pleasure is a birthright. Yeah. And I love that, that, that we are born, we are intended to experience pleasure. And I think a lot of particularly women, but probably some men there, there is so much shame involved or, or we've been socialized as women to tell ourselves we don't deserve it. There's certain gender roles that are all around thinking about the other. And so, yeah, how do we, how do we relearn how to claim that as a right and an entitlement rather than a luxury or privilege? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I actually recently was thinking of like my own sex education and thinking of like how absurd it is that like I spent however many years in like middle and high school watching someone like roll a condom onto a cucumber but no one ever taught me like how to have a conversation around STIs and like how to ask someone like hey have you been tested recently and like how to move through like the discomfort of of that conversation and and like it's no wonder that so many people have STIs or like end up getting pregnant when they don't want to because they're too afraid to ask their partner to put on a condom or to like whatever like just navigating like the relational aspect of sex is so tricky and never taught to us and it like infuriates me like it really to think about that like wow no one ever taught me like how to be vulnerable with a partner and say like hey I don't know if you're sleeping with other people but like I'd like to know because I'd feel more comfortable having sex with you and yeah and just all these things of like oh don't you know don't bring up anything tricky before sex because it'll just ruin the mood and like just all this bullshit it's like it's really crazy right yeah don't bring anything up but sex is dangerous and (laughs) all of the reasons why you can die why you can get sick but we're not going to teach you how to navigate that so good luck right (laughs) 
Yeah, and I think if kids just had like language, if they just learned language and it wasn't such a taboo, then it would be so much easier. It wouldn't feel so fraught. Mm-hmm. Um, but right, we have to learn all of that as adults and kind and secretively uh, on our mm-hmm. own time without you know any supervision from people who are older than us. I know that's actually a theme that I've noticed in my office as a therapist with young people is that a lot of it is helping them find the language to talk about like just really basic things. Like how do you ask a person out on a date? How do you break up with the person? How do you talk about sex? And, and some of that feels exploratory, but some of the time I feel more like a kind of older, like a mentor sort of providing like here, here's how you could say it. Like, what would that be like to share? Mm-hmm. Um, because language is so, is so difficult and so scary, I think, for a lot of young people. That also makes me curious because I think there is something so simple about, like, just communicating well. It's like, oh, like, really simply, like, asking for what you want, really simply asking, like, hey, are you sleeping with other people because I might not feel comfortable sleeping with you if you are, whatever type of thing, um, And I find with like a lot of people that I have conversations with, they're like, oh my God, that would be so awkward to ask it that way, to just like be so blunt. And I'm like, what other way am I going to do that? Like, it's just so, it's so much more painful to like try and figure out how to ask that differently. I am like not surprised to hear you say that, Simone, like you're literally like coaching people on how to speak and (laughs) ask questions and and name desires. Um, And yeah, I feel super curious about that as well and like how that is is also evolving generationally. Yeah, what's up with this terror of awkwardness? Yes. I feel I'm I'm constantly asking my younger patients to de- to describe like what their worry is. Like what if you have this awkward moment? Like mm-hmm. what 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 would that mean? Mm-hmm. If there's a moment of quietness or a moment where you're not sure how to respond. And I I'm still I'm curious to hear what you guys think and why that might be, but it comes up all the time. Yeah. Yeah, this, this inability to tolerate awkwardness. I know it's like um, I don't know what that what that is. It's like it's like this. There's this expectation that everything needs to go smoothly, mm-hmm. right? And that like you you know I don't know. Like maybe it's something about I think there you know like I think there's a again there's a lot of fear of. Um, uh, a lot of fear of being seen in a negative way, perhaps a lot of fear of hurting the other person, a lot of fear of like not being, not having a perfect situation. Mm-hmm. There's something about that that seems to come up a lot of the time because the reality is like authentic people like authentic people. Right. Like most people like authentic people. Like it's a tremendous relief for most people. I mean, myself included, like when other, when partners have been direct with me, it's like, oh my God, thank God, you're just being on it. Even if it's something bad, even if it's like, I'm really angry with you or like, mm-hmm. you know, because of this thing or I really would want, I want this from you. Or, you know, like just anything that's direct is such a relief, but there's such a fear of being perceived negatively that it's going to land in the wrong way mm-hmm. um, that gets in the way of, of people being themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there, I think you said something, Sina, that is very true, which is like, there is a real standard of perfection for a lot of young people, perfection interpersonally, perfection um, in appearance, perfection professionally, and part of just speaking, it's like, there's this, that same standard of like, I have to say things in this perfectly eloquent way and be really charismatic or I'm, or my like self-worth is on the line. Like somehow I'll be rejected. Be good enough, and like to your point, Sina. Like when I see a professional or someone in authority kind of stumble over a word or be very real, like I really appreciate it. There's something that feels. I mean, this is why I think Brene Brown is so popular and famous because like she puts herself out there and is like, "I am not perfect." And you're like, "Yes, that is amazing." Mm -hmm. Right. Sometimes you know. It would, it, well, I'm thinking it'd probably be good to ask patients, like, do you like perfect people? Because I don't. <laughs> <laughs> like, the people who are, who are perf- perfect, right, who, who work so hard on this image thing, it's totally disconnecting. You feel like you don't know them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like so... Inauthentic. Yeah, feel good. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of going back to like the, the paradoxes and the contradictions that we were talking about earlier of like, be authentic. It's important to be authentic, but also like, don't, because then people are going to know that you're not perfect and that would be horrible. And like, yeah, the, the, the intolerance we have for, for discomfort and awkwardness, it's like so real the way that it shows up in communication. And I, I remember I, this was maybe like sometime last year, I was having a conversation with some female friends around faking orgasms. And this, it came up so huge with like the awkwardness of having to tell, we were talking about like male partners specifically, having to tell a, a guy that like you didn't come. And and they were just like, oh, it's just like so awkward to say. It's just easier to fake it. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, I was blown away. I like couldn't believe all the women in the room like had this consensus. And I know I want to sit here and be like, I'm so perfect and authentic all the time. Like, I'm not. I have all of my own struggles with authenticity and, and vulnerability, especially with sex. But um, yeah, with that specifically, I was like, gosh, all these all these women are like sitting together in a room and saying like, I would rather forego my own pleasure lie have to put on some performance and like make someone else feel comfortable just so I don't have to be like actually like this is fine this is great but like I'm not done yet and like I would love for you to do x y and z for me also like to so that I can feel pleasure and like feel complete in this experience and yeah and there there is something that's like oh yeah it's scary it's direct it's uncomfortable it's like oh actually you didn't pleasure me in the in the way that you thought you did and i might have to like break that news to you and that's uncomfortable and there's a lot they're protecting themselves from mm -hmm. yeah like there's something really like scary yeah yeah this is the kind of damage of patriarchy i think both for men and women for women that they constantly feel like they have to caretake yeah. male ego and sacrifice their own needs, kind of abandon themselves for the other. And I think it's really, I mean, we, we were just discussing this in our an interview with Alexandra Solomon, how so many men's self-worth is tied to the female orgasm or the mm -hmm. erection, or they're like, I mean, that they really do go to a deep place of inadequacy and worthlessness yeah. around sex. And I think women probably intuitively pick up on that. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of sad for both, like how horrible for the male partner. I mean, bad that there's an expectation, but also really sad that they go to deep places of shame mm -hmm. if they can't pleasure a woman. Mm -hmm. like that, totally. that, that's a process and that's a natural process. And it's so normal to not achieve orgasm or not have amazing sex the first time because it's, it's, it's a negotiated um, partnership. Mm -hmm. Something else I, I think about just as we're having this conversation is all of this pressure to be perfect, both, uh, you know, uh, men's self-esteem being tied to sexual performance or, you know, um, women and men not being able to have these awkward conversations. I think it really does a lot of damage in the long term. Yeah. Because the reality is like life is so imperfect and all kinds of shit is going to happen later on. And so to not be able to have like difficult conversations now or not be able to be vulnerable now or, or then it's going to feel much worse when like actual stuff happens in life, you know, big deal things that need to be addressed or things that are not perfect. You know, I think it builds also a lot of resilience in people when they're, more authentic and, and can be more direct. Mm -hmm. Right. Because part of it is that you're, you're sending the message to my, to yourself that you matter and yes. that your needs and wants matter and that you're important. And when you push that down all the time, you're sending the opposite message, which is I am not important. My needs don't matter. I'm not okay. And like that, that's really reinforcing. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I think a lot of it also, yeah, like beautifully ties back to the beginning of this conversation of like how people can be in connection with others and still feel so lonely and, and not, yeah, having the skills and the understanding of themselves when they're not used to really deeply paying attention to their own needs and wants. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, well, I want to be mindful of our time. I feel like we have only broken the surface. I seriously <laughs> feel like I, I have so many other things to like ask about and comment on. And this is so yeah, this has been like really fantastic. Um, but I want to do two things before we close. One, 
I would love for y'all to tell all the people listening where they can find more info about each of you and the work you do and and your podcast. Um, and then I want to ask you a few like lightning rounds, introspective questions. Ooh. <laughs> you can find us at lovelink.co. And then our podcast is on um, iTunes and Spotify, Stitcher, and we're also doing we're doing a um, eight part series group called Dating During COVID. Mm. Is that what, is that what we call it? Dating During COVID. It's a it's a support group for yeah. people who are dating during this really murky, confusing time, and and for people to both offer and receive support but yeah. also kind of go through like all of the kind of questions that I think are on people's mind. Like, how do you manage risk? How do you yeah. date virtually? Um, what is it like to be isolated when you're single and how do you self soothe or how do you connect with others? So we'll be covering topics, but also having people really connect on those themes. And we framed it as, as dating during COVID, like, you know, just what it's like to have been in this, isolating period but it's themes that are kind of for all single people yeah mm -hmm. so you can register on our on our website at yeah. lovely uh, amazing that sounds great <laughs> cool okay are you ready for your questions so should Sina and I answer just together like should we kind of go back no and you can have your own own individual okay. Uh, responses yeah okay um your first question is what is something that most people wrongly assume about you <laughs> It's hard. <laughs> um, I think I'm much goofier than people think when they first meet me. Mm. I think I come across as put together, and I think I'm actually a lot messier and goofier when you get to know me. Mm. Yeah, I have a similar thing. People, I think people see me as being quite reserved, um, maybe a little bit more on the serious side, and. Um, I would say I'm more adventurous than most people would expect. Beautiful. Second question, what is something you would like to be acknowledged more for in your life? My wisdom. No, I'm kidding. No, that's a great <laughs> answer. <laughs> um, um, I, th I think actually, oh God, we're going to answer all too similarly. I do think my spiritual side like I, I don't really talk about that as much and I don't really, um, I think probably many people wouldn't know that about me, but it's something that I'm really curious about, that I really love, that I think is really important to me. So I, I'd like to be acknowledged more and um, share more. I'd like to have more conversations about that with others. Yeah, this is a that's a tough question. I do think that there's... You know, something I think about actually being a therapist is um, I think I need to do a better job of opening up more to my own therapist, but also to friends about how challenging this job can be sometimes mm. um, and kind of what what it takes um, to, be, to be a therapist and to hold so many psychologies. I think, um, yeah. So that's maybe something I want to, be more open about and, and also have be so other people, I can get some more feedback from other people about that. Be known more in that way. Mm -hmm. Great. Third question is what do you think most people learn from you? I think being playful. So something that I really pride in myself is um, how to play as an adult. Mm -hmm. I, I think when I was a kid, you know, it's much, it's much easier to access that part. We have our imaginations, our fantasy world, make believe, but I, I'm not really willing to let that go as an adult. And so I think I bring a lot of play, you know, I, I have these friends over right now and we're making, um, a horror movie. <laughs> You're making bed. a horror movie? <laughs> so fun. Very, it's very low budget. <laughs> But there is a way that I think, and I, and I do that often where I, I kind of think about how can we make a little, like a little movie where we can play make believe, but under the guise of something that's like putting together a project. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I, I help people um, 
access their own playfulness um, in, in these ways that, yeah, I think I love and I love to bring to others. That's great. <laughs> you are very playful. Um, I think, what do people learn from me? Um, you know, I really try both with my clients, but also with the people in my life, really try and help them to see the good in themselves. Like I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm always, you know, trying to help people to discover themselves to their own, you know, inner wisdom or inner strength. I know that sounds very cliche, but I feel like that's something um, I, I work at. Mm. Can I share something that I've learned from Sina? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> I feel like Sina has taught me to be more bold. Mm. Like she's really good at taking risks and owning them, whether it be professionally or whether it be personally. And there's a real like permission giving around that. Mm. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that feels good to hear. <laughs> Again, I think that that part of me is not something that would be automatically assumed, but um, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Beautiful. And last question, what is one of your favorite questions to ask other people to help you to get to know them? Mm. These are tough questions. <laughs> I love it. Of the lightning round. I know it's like really it's a misnomer completely. Like it makes no sense. I'm always curious, like what what touches people? What oh. you know, what makes you cry or like what makes you what yeah. That question touched me. Oh my gosh, I love that. Um hmm. this is a hard question mm. in itself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to go with maybe a little darker, the darker side, like what, um, what gets you kind of stuck in your head mm. or, um, you know, kind of where, where do you get stuck, maybe stuck in your life? Mm. Um, yeah, that I, that I find like people's insecurities, which are so universal. It's like once, once you share them, it, it sort of sheds some of the power from them, but also it allows you to connect more easily with others too. I love that. I also think it would be interesting. People wouldn't be open about this, but to know people's fantasies, like the people they want to kill, the people they want to hurt, the people they want to have sex with, the, like all the stuff, you know, the fantasy life of somebody. Yes. Hear what's your darkest fantasy or what's mm -hmm. your most provocative fantasy? <laughs> well, Sina, Simone, thank you both so much. This has been so great. And I know there's like, again, so many other things I could dive into with both of you. But I, uh, yeah, I'm really grateful for you both taking the time out of your day and uh, speaking with everyone listening. And I'm sure there's a lot of universal stuff that's been uh, said and heard today. This is so much fun. Thank you for having us on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. All right, everyone, that is the episode with Sina and Simone. I hope you enjoyed it. Once again, go check out the links in the show notes if you are interested in learning more about their work or the workshop series that they are putting on. And thank you so much for listening. I love you all so much, and I'll be back next week with the next episode.